What's going on, guys? Thanks for joining us today. We're really glad to have you here. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and this is the August 16th edition of The View from the Front. For those who don't know, I'm a prior infantry Marine who loves talking about military matters, and every Tuesday and Friday, we discuss military and defense news, as well as some history and motivation and wisdom, and I do all of this from a moderate perspective. The Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed a day unless you're a paid subscriber. That's just kind of a small incentive to encourage, you know, to get folks to encourage what we're doing here if you can. It's, uh, but it also doesn't really penalize you too much if you don't. It's just a one-day delay um, if you can't make that $5 a month payment. So uh, that's it. Let's get into it. thought we'd start with um, a um, kind of looming scary thing in the southern part of Ukraine that Russia has uh, invaded and occupied up from the Crimean Peninsula. There is a nuclear plant, and um, there's been some um, growing concern, especially in the Western world and certainly in Ukraine, about um, a potential nuclear catastrophe there. Uh, there's been artillery shells that have literally been hitting it. Um, and so this uh, nuclear plant is currently occupied by Russian troops, but there's Ukrainian staff still there, um, and both sides are claiming the Russians say the Ukrainians are shelling it, which would, of course, make almost no sense. The Russia, uh, Ukrainians are saying Russians are, sh are shelling it. Um, so it's hard to tell exactly what the truth is. But either way, uh, shooting artillery at a nuclear plant, which is actually the largest nuclear plant in Europe, is not good for anyone. So there have been some calls for um, like a demilitarized zone. Um, I've put a link into the article. There, you can find numerous articles about this throughout any source of media that you trust. Um, I've got a link from a Washington Post editorial, but you literally just Google uh, Ukraine uh, nuclear reactor and any word after that, and it's pretty much going to pop up. Um, so I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but the West is growing increasingly concerned, and they are talking about some kind of a demilitarized zone around it. Um, I'm not sure if that'll happen or not. I know um, months ago, folks were talking about obviously a no-fly zone and what that would entail and the dangers of trying to create one. But uh, when you start talking about uh, radiation leaks and nuclear issues, that's kind of a big deal. And it is starting to get more traction in the West. Um, and you'll see reports of it with the uh, United Nations, also with the uh, International Atomic Agency. There's a, uh, and I'll find its acronym. Give me one second. All right, it's called the International Atomic Energy Agency. I apologize that that didn't come to me right off the top of my head, but uh, at any rate, there's uh, that's kind of a worldwide um, agency that tries to contain situations. So not sure if anything's going to happen to that, but I did want to bring everyone's attention to that since I didn't manage to squeeze it in on Friday. And since uh, there is no resolution and it is something that is kind of growing in uh, possible uh, concerns. I also have in the source notes a interview from a uh, military analyst. His, uh, he's a retired major from the U.S. Army. His name is John Spencer. Uh, I put a link to an interview uh, that he did. And um, he basically, uh, he's asked about, you know, if we did a demilitarized zone, what would it look like? And he basically said it's it's pretty simple and it's a two-step solution, but there is one big problem. So the two steps are obviously allow in uh, 
IA, EA inspectors for the, you know, inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Make sure that everything is stable. There are no issues since there have been artillery rounds that have landed there. Um, and then the second thing is insert observers and keep them there so that anytime the Russians claim that they didn't fire rounds or the Ukrainians, there's someone there who can actually verify what exactly is happening. Um, so that's the two-step solution that um, retired Major uh, Spencer suggests. But um, the obvious issue is that with that is that the Russians don't want don't want to be a part of this. So as usual, um, it's uh, it's tough to deal with the Russians, and uh, I've obviously in in past editions um, more than once talked about how they have lied, brutalized the country, invaded, and done all kinds of wrong things. So I can't even, from a, an objective means, um, share show any kind of, um, I don't know, impartiality, because it's it's impossible with them. But at any rate, uh, you'd like to think that if they claim that the Ukrainians are doing these things, that they would allow in observers. But as usual, they are um, being pretty petulant about this. And they're not going to allow that to happen unless something changes. So let's move on to um, something we discussed in Friday's edition, and that's the uh, airstrikes that happened, uh, or the attacks on an airbase in the in the Crimean Peninsula. And obviously, I, I posted last week video to it. I discussed the various competing theories on what had happened, from like saboteurs to locals who maybe worked with government forces and launched drones to some kind of Final option is like some kind of long-range weapon that Ukraine and the U.S. doesn't want to admit. And so there was lots of speculation about what it was, and I had put in an article from the Washington Post which mainly seemed to credit uh, saboteurs or locals using drones. Um, but since then, been a couple of things happened, and, um, you know, <laughs> holy crap, it, I had expressed some skepticism in the podcast, which is all timestamp, nothing's been changed, you can listen to it yourself if you missed it, that I didn't really think it could possibly be locals using drones, um, and I had skepticism that it was saboteurs, <clears throat> as the Washington Post cited, because I just can't believe that Russian security would be that ineffective, even though I have very low regard for the Russian military and its competence at this point, and uh, history, at least the last six months or so, has definitely proven that out. However, couple things happened since then. So the first one is, I have this in the source notes, the Kiev Independent, which is a Ukrainian um, media source that a lot of Western journalists rely on. I've used or cited them a lot. I've watched them for six plus months. They seem to be very accurate, um, although I haven't done some like 10-year analysis on the accuracy of this media source. However, large following on Twitter, very accurate from everything I've seen. And they posted something um, that stated that the U.S. Department of Defense had uh, admitted that Ukrainian forces um, bombed the airbase um, with weapons provided by the U.S. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, holy cow, I'm so glad that I you know, was very skeptical in the Friday podcast. Could I possibly have been right about this? And so I was at first super glad about that and then trying to be a responsible podcaster or whatever it is I'm trying to do here. I tried to find the um, remarks in the Pentagon, and I couldn't find anywhere that really nailed it down. But since then, 
a um, couple of other things have happened. First, the Washington Post wrote another article about the attack, um, talking to analysts, etc. And in my uh, humble opinion, they kind of like backtracked a little bit. And basically, they say it's not known and it can't possibly be confirmed. And they, it's kind of a long article. And um, in my opinion, respectfully, they backtracked about it being saboteurs being the most likely cause. Also, though, um, the the UK Defense Ministry, you know, Great Britain said that um, that the original cause of the blast were almost certainly from four uncovered munition storage areas, and that they were likely struck by quote relatively large munitions end quote. Um, so the interesting thing about that is that local drones probably wasn't local drones, probably wasn't local saboteurs. Um, and of course, the base is 140 miles from the closest front line. So at any rate, we still don't really have an exact answer, but it might have been missiles of some type from uh, from the Ukrainians, and um, which is still my pretty strong assessment or belief, um, particularly since, as I said on Friday, many of those jets are, they have walls around them. Um, so they were mostly protected. Um, so I, it just seems to me that they were individually targeted, and I just can't believe that somehow saboteurs got onto the base and individually targeted all these jets and these munition areas without being seen. It just seems almost impossible for me to believe, even given Russian incompetence. Let's move now to just a quick update about the area around Kherson in the southern part of Ukraine which the, Rus uh, the Russians currently control. We've talked a lot in the last few weeks about how the Ukrainians have been hitting um, bridges um, and they're trying to basically strangle this area to eventually retake what is one of the only, or the only provincial capital that the Russians were able to seize with their third invasion, which is the one everyone's talking about since February. So um, around Kherson, we've talked about how many troops are potentially there that are Russian and that are uh, increasingly running out of supplies. And um, I've got a link to a, another Washington Post story that um, a couple of things. One, the Russians, according to the story, have reinforced in the region, um, apparently moving about 3,000 troops. These are mostly elite airborne troops, according to the Washington Post, and that they believe that there are now about 15,000 troops on the western bank of the uh, Dnipro River. So these are troops who could be cut off. Um, so I wanted to cite that and, and provide the link. So that's in there. Um, two other quick points about this. this. is This is war and things are gray and there's always, um, you know, deception and there's always uncertainty. So the two things that I wanted to additionally bring up when is there's, as a part of that story, it's in the source notes, there's an analyst who says he thinks the Russians will actually pull out of Kherson soon, that it's hard to resupply. Um, but there's also, um, and I didn't put source notes to this because it, it's mostly um, it's mostly folks on Twitter who are what I would call like amateur analysts. Um, these are prior military folks usually who enjoy studying this stuff, who have, you know, opinions, etc. So, I'll just say that a bunch of them are actually starting to think that um, the whole Kherson offensive, and I put that in quotes that you can't see, won't actually be an offensive. At best, it'll be like a strangulation, but possibly 
seems like more and more folks are also talking about that it's almost, it could be a, ru a ruse. I can barely speak. I apologize. But that perhaps the Ukrainians have been talking about this for weeks and weeks, if not a couple of months now, to force the Russians to shift their forces and that actually they're going to hit somewhere else. So this will be interesting to see it play out. Um, one other thing I did notice in one of the many, many stories I've read, and I can't even remember where I found this one from, um, but I don't think this is something necessarily needs to be cited. But it said that uh, by October, things are going to get um, it, it has to happen soon if it's going to happen, because by October, the muddy season begins and that makes like military movements difficult. So I can't remember which article I read that in. I read a lot. I don't think that's some kind of like top secret thing. So um, at any rate, if something's going to happen, it needs to happen soon. But it will be interesting if this whole thing was a ruse. Um, just to get the Russians to shift their forces, because the Ukrainians are advancing in a couple of other places, um, while the Russians continue to make small advances on the eastern front in the Donbass region. Okay, we're going to end with two more things about Ukraine. Um, first, um, I came across a lot of times I'll start digging on something, and uh, obviously my background was as a was as a uh, reporter journalist after my military background, and so I did that for about ten years. But I can. Uh, I can spend hours just digging on stuff, and sometimes I kick myself because I spend too long doing it. But I came across an article in The Economist, which led me to do lots of other research. And um, and I wanted to talk for a second about something that digging into the weeds I came across, which is that, uh, so as you re may recall, Russia invaded the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014, um, obviously almost, what, eight years ago. And um, there's huge military base there. It was a strategic um, big gain for uh, Russia, and they've kept it with almost no fighting the entire time. The uh, the attack that was on the airfield that we discussed last week is one of the first ones that's really happened. And um, as Ukraine has fended off the Russians, held them, people are starting to talk about potentially retaking it. So I've really been trying to dig into the whole Crimean Peninsula, the terrain, etc., um, and what may or may not happen. I'm kind of an optimist, and I hope the Ukrainians can take it. There's a, um, a lot of people who express skepticism about that. But I did share that speech last week from the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, because uh, increasingly folks in Ukraine not only have strong public support, but they're claiming they're not going to stop until they take it back. But while doing all this research, uh, I learned about um, that in Crimea, there's a, a water crisis. And this goes all the way back to the 50s. Um, I got a link to one article um, from a Kiev post. I found some stuff on Wikipedia. I found stuff on lots of um, articles that you just, just start to Google Crimea water crisis. You can find all kinds of sources. So let's get into this just real quick. So what I learned is, so going back to the 50s, so we're talking 70 years ago, um, only... About 150 out of almost 1,000 villages in Crimea had regular access to drinking water. Um, the place is kind of dry. And um, so back in the 50s, not much water. So takes, like most governments, a while to do something. But by the 70s, the government had decided a way to fix this was, hey, let's, let's build this massive canal that um, will bring water from a, one of the major rivers up north. So they built a 400-kilometer canal, and this canal was so successful, it brings, one source I saw said, a billion cubic meters of water 
from the Dnipro River every year. I don't know how much that is, but that's a freaking ton of water. And so the Crimean Peninsula became um, far more uh, economically viable as there was plenty of water. They, um, they started planting crops and doing all kinds of economic and agricultural development. Once Russia took it in 2014, um, what the Russians didn't count on was, and I, I didn't even know Ukraine had done this, um, they, had, they didn't count on Ukraine cutting off the water. So what the Ukrainians did is they built this dam 10 miles away from where the Russians had occupied, stopped all water there. And what that has done is caused this very, very expensive uh, water situation, shortages, all kinds of issues. And you can read about this in the uh, Kiev Post link that I've uh, got in the source notes. So the Russians were obviously pissed about this, and probably this helped them decide that, um, hey, you know, we might as well try to take the whole country. I'm sure it's a small factor, but I haven't seen anywhere in um, Western media anyway discuss that this was one of the things that the Russians were mad about. So it was interesting to see that. I don't blame the Ukrainians. They'd already been invaded, but they certainly cut this off. Now, there was a quote that um, after the Russians had complained about this before this third invasion, um, there was a defense of what had happened from the Ukrainians who said, and I'll quote it, he said, Ukraine did not block any natural water course or river carrying water to Crimea. It merely suspended the artificial water preference that was previously provided to accelerate the economic and agricultural development of that peninsula and um, it talks a little bit more that they wanted to make the occupation of Crimea too expensive for the Russians. So, at any rate, it was interesting to see that. And as the, uh, so right now, the Russians, uh, obviously with their third invasion, they pushed north, they went past this dam, they blew it. So they have plenty of water now there down there, which is why when you see those videos of that um, attack last week, on the uh, air base, you can see tourists, and they're all having a great time. It's because now there's plenty of water; everything's fine. There's also a, just a large, massive land bridge from Russia to Crimea, um, so that Russians can easily reinforce the place. Tourists can travel there. Although obviously now tourists are no longer traveling there because the Ukrainians are starting to hit it, and it's turning into a war, you know, a war location or somewhere that you wouldn't necessarily want to take the kids on vacation. So. It'll be interesting to see um, as the Ukrainians do push south, which I believe they will, and as they are currently doing around uh, Kherson, uh, if they eventually cut the water back off, um, because that would be a way to start to hasten the um, exit of Russia again. So, again, a little bit of a sidetrack, but that's the way my research went. I was interested to read that. Hopefully you found that interesting. You can, like I said, I've got a link to the article. Or you can do some research on it yourself. It's kind of interesting. And as promised, I wanted to hit one final thing about Ukraine and Russia. There was an article that was uh, posted in the uh, Atlantic uh, Council that talked about that the uh, mayor of Mariupol has estimated that 20,000 civilians had been killed since the Russians occupied the place. And he notes that this was twice the number of deaths recorded 
in the entire two-year Nazi occupation of the city during World War II. So, Russia has killed 20,000 civilians, which is twice the number of what Germans did under Hitler during World War II. So, if you need any further proof, I've talked so many times about um, the horrible things, the horrible things the Russians are doing, where they're putting people on trains and shipping them out. They're obviously, um, unfortunately, raping lots of women and young girls. Um, they're executing prisoners. They're torturing prisoners. They're doing horrific things. And so, yet once again, there's more proof of that and the brutality that they're showing. And um, it seems like I could put stuff up about this every single edition. But um, I always try to, if there's something big like this, to mention it because I know I come across as very biased, very pro-Western, and uh, newsflash I am. But I do want to try to be fair, but it's very hard to even be fair to the Russians and the conduct of uh, their troops in Ukraine on, by any like stretch of the imagination. It's impossible to um, hardly defend anything they've done, honestly. The actions of their soldiers have just been despicable dishonorable and every word and adjective that you could attach and noun that you could attach to that um and it's only going to get worse because uh you know as i said i think a week or so ago they're they're starting to actually um enlist folks from prison um the quality of the troops is just horrible and um i didn't add a link to this because it's honestly almost too upsetting to even consider but in some of the regions that um the Russians have right now in the Donbass area. Um, there's a an area called Luhansk, and um, they are actually um, grabbing local young men and uh, forcing them to serve as conscripts. And um, sadly, they are putting these men out front with almost no training, and um, not even just making them serve as soldiers. They are also making them serve as guides. And essentially threatening to shoot them, to force them to move forward. And when the Ukrainians see what they perceive to be Russian forces advancing, they obviously open fire. Um, it does a couple of things. One, unfortunately, it's killing Ukrainians, many of whom don't even want to serve the Russians. Also, it gives away the, uh, the Ukrainian position, which spares Russian soldiers. And then they attack the Ukrainian position. So the level of uh, just barbarity that the Russians are doing right now, besides shipping out families. Um, I, I could go on for hours, and it just absolutely infuriates me. So uh, at any rate, um, I'll try to move on from that without going on about a two-hour rant. I guess about the only good thing that has come from the, uh, uh, the actions of Putin and the Russians is that um, obviously the world is... Um, standing up against them and, and helping Ukraine in its fight. But uh, interestingly, um, I even have a source link. I've been meaning to share this for a couple of weeks. It's from July. But there are, um, as you may recall, Belarus is a country um, next that is um, next to Russia, obviously next to it borders Ukraine as well. It's pretty much a pro-Russian country, or at least its leadership is. Um, and Russians have been launching attacks from there. There's been some word, numerous threats and some word that at some point even some Belarus uh, troops could be involved in the invasion of Ukraine. So it's basically a country that's allied with Ukraine. But The Economist had a story of a um, what it, they call themselves a regiment, but it was um, three or four hundred um, 
men from Belarus who actually, um, I guess, fled the country or left the country to go to Ukraine to fight um, Putin as a way to help the Ukrainians and also show their displeasure at the um, alignment of their country with Russia. So uh, I know The Economist is kind of an expensive subscription, and I don't want to give too much away from the article, but um, you could probably, if you Googled it, find some more about it. But um, we all know there's been Westerners from America, UK, other European countries who have gone to Ukraine to help support, feed, and fight for Ukraine. But uh, even countries that, at least on paper, are supportive of the Russian regime, they have sent, um, they haven't sent, uh, people from those countries have gone to fight. So if there's any good about that, about this whole mess, it's that, you know, in darkness, when there's that kind of darkness, light will always rise up to try to defeat it. So, uh, any rate, okay, that was kind of deep. We'll just, let's move something else. Okay, sorry that got a little darker than I wanted it to. So, let's, um, let's move something much lighter. So, some tech news. And, um, I saw a article in Defense News that, and I have a link to it, and it's a, pretty cool looking little yellow looking robot that looks like a dog and um the army is currently testing a what they call a four-legged robot or quote dog as well as some small unmanned aerial vehicles um they're working on technologies to try to reduce the amount of uh casualties that uh infantry units um uh basically always seem to take um the article talks about that infantry usually comprise about 90% of all U.S. military deaths since World War II. And so the Army's looking at ways to try to reduce it. And so they've come up with this really cool-looking little yellow four-legged dog. It's almost worth going to source notes to see it. Looks kind of cute. Um, currently unarmed, but that will possibly change. But uh, I always like trying to share some tech news because it's interesting to see where the... Um, spheres of war are eventually moving towards and so these these uh, currently this dog that they're making which i'm sure will not be um bright yellow in its combat field version will basically be used for scouting and um you could scout buildings locations that might come under fire and it would take the place of soldiers um obviously it could even cross minefields or various dangerous things and then eventually could even uh you could even add weapons to it so this kind of really cool thing. Um, I'm obviously all about technology. It gives us an edge on the battlefield. It obviously does reduce casualties. Um, and um, I think we're probably even further along on some of these things than the public knows. We typically are. You know, there's always stuff that's secret that we're not um, informed of. But uh, it's interesting. We've talked about um, unmanned ships with the Navy in previous weeks. And how they've done, you know, multi-thousand mile treks. And so, here's more tech news of robots um, that um, you could potentially see on some future battlefield. So if you, like I said, I've got the link in the source notes. Definitely go check it out, read it. I don't want to share too much from the article, but a uh, really cool story. And uh, I definitely wanted to end on a lighter note. And from there, let's move to some uh, motivation and inspiration, which I love to do every week and which is probably the best part of the podcast. As I say every week, I've got all of these linked in the source notes. These are various accounts on Twitter, typically, that I find that I like to read, that they help inspire me. So go follow these folks. Uh, I'm not going to name all of them as I go down through them. It's uh, too bulky and time-consuming to do that. 
but they're in the source notes, and let's just start. The first one, actions speak loudest. That's a great quote. Okay, here's one. Um, your hardest challenges will teach you your best lessons. Here's another. You become what you read, what you think, what you believe, who you hang out with. Thought that was a good one. Here's another one. Stop waiting for tomorrow. Start now. Um, here's another one. The reward for our work is not what we get, but what we become. That was pretty deep. Uh, this one's from Thomas Jefferson. I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more of it I have. I've heard that one before. That's a great one. Um, here's another one. Where, you're, where you'll end up has nothing to do with where you're currently at. That is an amazing one. Um, let's go with one more. You have time. Remind yourself that you have time. Super simple, but we all get so stressed out. We all feel like we don't have time to do the dreams that we want. And um, that's just a good reminder. Live in the moment, and um, we all have time. We all need to uh, get after it and do what we want to do or should do or, f or have been running from for years. It's uh, easy to get beat down in life and think that we can't do the things we want to do. But uh, I'm a pretty firm believer that uh, we can and that we should. So uh, anyway, that's it for this edition. As I like to do at the end of every edition, um, I like to say, you know, please be kind. Try to be as do the best you can to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work to unite the country and try to stop hating those on the other side of the aisle. Um, we have to stop rewarding the loudest and the most angry on each side. And we need to bring back more decency to our politics. We need compromise, respect for the other side, and a more serious gravity to the matters before our country. So try to be a better person yourself each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media, how you interact with others with whom you disagree. Um, we can all kind of work to try to repair this country because I see, all, I see everyone's posts on social media and they are not pretty. So let's all be kind. We can do this. Uh, finally, if you haven't signed up, definitely sign up. You can get the free episodes at a minimum. All you got to do is insert your uh, email address. Um, love to have you join what we're doing here or sign up on the podcast you're listening to uh, with us from. And if you love what we're doing, um, I would love it and super appreciate it if you threw a couple bucks in the hat by subscribing. That would um, you know help us grow the show. And uh, so I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email. Can't even tell you how much those mean to me. I seriously love each and every one of y'all. So that's it. Have a great um, rest of your week. I will see you guys on Friday. Thanks so much.